Hi everyone, this is Arathi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with a past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across the lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. Acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we're going to be speaking to Greg and we'll be talking about his journey in education. Um, Greg, feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name's Greg. Uh, I'm the principal at Clayton South Primary School currently. Um, I've been in education for 17 years now. Um, I was a classroom teacher for the first 11 at a school out in Nary Warren South called Hillsmead Primary School. Uh, my passion out there was teaching numeracy. I think that's what I was sort of known for out there was my maths. Then I moved to another small school uh, called Bitten Primary School. And then from there became a principal. So I went straight from classroom teacher to principal, which was a big step. Yeah. Um, I've been a principal for five years now. So love, love what I do. Love working with kids, love working in a school. Yeah. That's, that's been my, yeah, my, my life so far. My chapter has been, yeah, working in a school. I've been in a school since I was four years old and haven't left. But <laughs> yeah. you think of it that way, isn't it? It's like a full yeah. cycle. Mm. Yeah, so my chapter is school, definitely. Yeah, we have a title, school. Yeah, there you go. Greg, I wanted to ask you, when you first started uh, teaching, take us through a little bit of your journey from when you first started to when you became a principal, like that part of your chapter. Yeah, that's a big leap. So I can safely admit that I probably wasn't the most professional teacher. I wasn't reading research. I was turning up to school and doing what I thought was best, which was usually just something fun for the kids. Uh, I know I was well liked by the community and the students and the teachers, um, but I, I had a completely different mindset to what I have now. So now is more of a growth mindset. I want to learn everything I can possibly learn to help the students and the teachers. But my, yeah, when I started, I was 22, um, really had a passion for numeracy and um, time, teaching times tables was my big thing in the classroom. I always had times tables every day and I felt like my kids left my class really well-versed in, in maths. Um, so working for 11 years in the same school had its ups and downs. So I guess the positives for that is knowing all of the students. There were 905 students and I could tell you every one of them by name. Um, loved going out on yard duty and getting to know all the kids. Um, really had good connections with all the parents and the community and the families. Um, but I guess in a big school, there's not so much room for growth. And I was getting a bit settled as a classroom teacher and I, I didn't have any aspiration to be a leader. I remember the assistant principal coming over and tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you're ready for leadership now. Why don't you think about leadership? And they offered me a, a leadership 
role in data um, as a data coach and I turned it down and I was happy just sitting back and, and just teaching my class. Um, I think they ended up asking me to interview for that role and I didn't. And then I got given the role anyway. So I kind of just fell into that. Um, but I, I felt, I'm not sure. I guess when I left that school, um, I moved to a very small school and because of the practices we had in the big school, I felt like a leader walking into the next school, even though I was still a classroom teacher, I took on a lot of leadership responsibilities there, um, was taken out of the classroom quite quickly so that I could um, fulfill some more leadership roles. And I guess quite quickly, I um, sort of saw myself as a leader when I hadn't previously. And I think that change from a big school to a small school. And I think anyone needing a change, it's really good to just move schools and just see what else is out there. That's probably the message from that is, is I became a bit stale in, in the big school and moving uh, reinvigorated me and, and I felt like I could make a difference again and became a bit more motivated. And yeah, within, within nine months, I was a principal. So I went from not wanting to take a leadership role moving schools and then nine months later I was leading a school so it was a big change um and one that I, I was a bit ambitious at the time I probably wasn't ready but when are you ever ready for something I just I like to take risks and I, I went for it um I think you you've brought up really interesting points and important points as well um which I'd like to touch on. You mentioned that you felt stale and you like even settled in as a classroom teacher, which, and one of the things was you said you lacked aspiration. What about that made you feel like that? Um, I, just being in the same place for too long, I think. I think in every profession, it's good to, make a change and, and try something different. Yeah. And I just went, fell into a pattern. I know there were most of the teachers at the first school I was at had been there since the school opened. We all had, yeah. and we had the same principal the whole time. Um, nothing changed and we didn't change either. We all, I taught grade two for five years straight and I taught grade four for five years straight. Um, and then I asked for prep. I thought I would like to do a change and I got put in grade six. So again, something different. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I just think I didn't push myself enough. I didn't have the motivation to just try something different. I was, I think I'm sort of a person that likes what I'm used to. Yeah. Um, my first ever job before teaching, I was there for six years as well from 15 to 21. I just didn't change. I think I just at the time liked knowing what I was doing, knowing the routine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's, sure. that sort of explains that, yeah. Yeah, and then so then you move to the small school. Um, leadership roles, yes, but what a, explain that small school sort of setting. What was it like? It Like even the way you're talking about it, it gave you or it appeared to give you a real energy boost. Um, yeah, so I got put in prep, which was what I had asked for at the previous school. So I kind of felt like straight away the things that I was asking for, I got. Mm -hmm. um, I was working um, with a graduate teacher. So 
I think feeding off her energy as well, um, being fresh to the scene and, and wanting to try new things. And I sort of fed off that a little bit myself and <clears throat> became a bit of a mentor for her. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe even just that, maybe just mentoring somebody else was what I needed as that kickstart to, to get that energy back. Um, and we just made a really good team in that, in that prep room. And then I guess moving around, I got put in three, four to start the next year. Yeah. So I moved mid-year. I came into the preps middle of the year. The start of the next year, I was in three, four with another graduate and same thing, mentored them. Um, and I think just, I don't know, something clicked in me that I, I really enjoy helping the staff. And it was that shift from, for the first 11 years, loving helping the students and getting the best out of them. Something shifted in me to wanting to help the staff and get the best out of the staff who then get the best out of the students. And I th moving to the small school might have been it. I know in the big school we had a lot of really good practices going on. We got a new principal mm. in about 2014 and she did make a lot of changes, but the school did need a lot of changes and I probably wasn't ready for the change then and rebelled a little bit like mm. you, you do when there's change. And um, moving to the new school, I brought those practices over and that school didn't have them in place and it just made me feel like I was making a difference to that smaller school um, and it just, it just grew from there. And yeah, just, I felt like I was ready to, to lead a school and I was a little bit ambitious cause I definitely wasn't ready. I hadn't been an assistant principal or anything like that, but just being cocky and young, I just had to go. Yeah. yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, speaking of practices, what is it that you took the, to the new school? Um, I think using data to inform your teaching mm. wasn't something that was happening there, but that was something that was second nature to me at the previous school. Mm. So we revamped our numeracy block and we grouped the kids from grade three to six by ability. Yeah. And we had all of the kids sit a pretest, and from that pretest, we grouped the kids and then we had smart goals and little goals that they could achieve in each of the groups that they went to and, we rotated teachers in the groups and planned as a group. And that just wasn't happening before in that little school. And in a small school, there's not so many people to bounce ideas off. There's not so many people to share planning responsibilities and roles. So for that small school context, that really worked well. And that was a practice that we brought over. And all of a sudden, teachers were creating their own pretests, getting to know the curriculum a lot better because they had to write questions that aligned to the curriculum and that was sort of just how, how it all started. Then we moved that into writing as well. So we had writing groups and then not long after that I left, but I know that they, they continued those practices and the staff really um, developed from, from doing that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And even do you have contact with the school today? Um, Some of the staff, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. one of the staff members I actually brought over to, to Clayton South. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. So from that little school to um, how did that happen? Um, so that, that was, that was, a, there was a step in between that. So the little school actually was a principal up um, and a regional school first. Oh yes. Called Belinda. Yeah. Belinda primary school. So um, I applied for that school and wasn't expecting to get the job. 
um, and in, had to move house to, to get that job. And yeah, got the call one day that I was successful. So first interview I had as a, for a principal position, I somehow got, I wasn't expecting. So made the move to regional Victoria, um, ended up living in Sunbury. Uh, and then, yes, yeah, so I was there and I began there as the teaching principal. So I had a prep to three class that I was teaching and I was also the principal. So we only had 30 students in the school. Um, 12 of them were year six. So the following year, they're expecting to only have 18 students in the school and school council was worried they were going to get shut down. So there was a lot of stress about that when I arrived, that they were going to get shut down. So I sort of kicked into marketing mode and had to think, how are we going to get enrolments? How are we going to make this school look like somewhere you want to go to? Um, and I just visited all the kindergartens. I visited anything I could to promote school. And I guess that's where my marketing came in, where I just had to put myself as the face of the school and um, just push anything I could that would make you want to come to the school. So in the end, it became science of reading. We became a school that works really well with um, dyslexic students um, my oldest son is high-functioning autistic, so I have a real passion for working with students on the spectrum, uh, and we became known for that too, just the way we worked with those students. Um, and, yeah, we just started to get students piling in from other schools, and before you knew it, we're up to 60 students. Um, um, as of today, they're at their full capacity of 75, so they can't actually take any more. So we've yeah, gone from thinking they're going to close down with 18 to 75 within three years. So that, that worked really well. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I needed to move back to Melbourne. My kids were back in Melbourne. So I applied at Clayton South and got the Clayton South position. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I guess prior to Clayton South, the way we pushed our science of reading and how I discovered science of reading was being put as a prep to three teacher mm -hmm. and running the school. My um, thoughts were I can't just let kids slip through the cracks anymore. As a classroom teacher, I probably had you three or four low students that came in low. I made the little improvements I could as best I could without knowing what to do. And they still left quite low. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that as a principal. I felt this bigger responsibility. I, I don't know what shifted but I just felt like I can't do I can't let them leave low so I contacted a speech pathologist and I employed her and we had her working in the school two days a week um, initially I had asked her to take all of the low students and fix them I said get here's all our low kids do we need to do get them up to where they should be and it ended up being 19 out of our 30 kids were well below level and she said and I remember she said you can't give me 19 students. If there's 19 out of 30 students alone, then it's the tier one practice is wrong. What you're doing in the classroom is wrong. We need to address that first. We can't just her band-aid everything and then they come back to the classroom and they've got the wrong instruction happening. So that's where she introduced me to the science of reading and phonemic awareness and, and phonics, explicit phonics and um, fluency, everything that's associated with the science of reading, the big six, we... She explained all of that to me over, you know, the course of a year, the whole of the 2018 year. And then from 2019, we really tried to implement that in all of our classrooms and um, 
purchase, okay, I just, she just said, there's a list of things I need to run this and I let her buy everything she needed because it was just that important to us. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that's where I got introduced to decodable books and um, phonemic awareness activities and, um, yeah, it started, you could see the difference in the students and how it was, how it was growing them. Um, especially we had quite a few dyslexic students at the school. So you could see just their confidence growing and working with Kirsty, the speech pathologist, just how much they were growing and the parents were so excited. And it just, I don't know, just um, something grew in me that I just wanted that. That was my passion from there. I was always numeracy and all of a sudden I was converted. She converted me and I was um, a reading person. So when I did get the job down at Clayton South, that was definitely the first thing I was bringing to them. And I thought the same thing. I came to Clayton South and we had 107 students mm -hmm. and again, only eight preps. And we, we just really needed a boost in enrolments. And so the same thing, I just went the marketing approach, contacted newspapers, um, any article they could write about us. I was happy to push. Um, so we had, the Age, Herald Sun, The Australian, all writing articles about anything I could promote about the school, even the smallest thing. I just wanted them into the school, taking photos, um, writing something positive about us, and then spreading that across our Facebook page. Um, I think at the moment we've got about 900 um, followers on our Facebook page for a school of 80 families. So I know that it's not just our families following us. We're getting a lot of people in the science and reading field jumping on to have a look at what we're doing. And um, I get a lot of emails. Can we come to your school and have a look at what you're doing or just come to have a chat about how we can do this at our school. Um, and that's great. I love doing that. I love sharing um, what we're doing and sharing my knowledge so that other schools follow suit because at the end of the day, it's for the students. And that's, yeah, obviously my passion is going to come through with, with that and anything you can do to boost the reading levels of our students is, is yeah, going to get me talking. Absolutely. Um, I have lots of questions. Just <laughs> yeah. so first of all, if um, you were to explain the big six of science of reading to a parent or to someone out in the community, mm -hmm. what would that explanation look like? So I'd probably start with um, phonemic awareness and explain to them the important role that plays in early readers so there's a video that i showed my staff by stanislas dahan um, and it's a youtube video and he talks about doing brain scans on um, people who are learning to read and seeing which parts of the brain light up when they're reading or when they're learning a new sound and and just he found that um, hearing the sounds lights up the part of the brain then linking that to the graphemes, to the letters that represent the sounds and, and doing that explicitly and systematically in a synthetic ap approach is what works. And, and that's exactly what we do at our school. So I'd explain that side of things to the, to the parents. Yeah. And then I explain the use of decodable text that they're, they're like training wheels for your student. Um, we teach them the sounds at school. So we might start with SATPIN, S-A-T-P-I-N, teach the kids explicitly the sounds those letters make and then they'll practice the blending at school so looking at s-i-t goes it and then blending it together to make sit once they can do that we would send them home the decodables that 
only have those sounds in the book. So it's very controlled text mm -hmm. and they would only have words that are made up of sat pin. So sit, pat, uh, and then the next page, pat, sits. It's very controlled, very simple, but it's what they need for practice. You don't get better at something without practicing. And there is reading wars going on where people advocate for decodable text. And then you've got people who are against teaching phonics in this way. Um, but I would ask them, how else are you going to do it? How else are you going to practice? Decodable texts are there for that reason. So you would only use them in year one, year prep and year one, first two years of school and potentially a third year. Um, there are decodable texts for older readers. So they're sort of higher interest for older readers, but easier to read. Yeah. Um, and that'll re-engage those students that have missed all of this. But that's the next step we explain to our parents why those books go home. Um, we get a lot of questions from teachers around what do you do with your old books, the levelled readers, which we don't advocate for. Um, we've actually grouped them by topic. So if we're doing an inquiry unit on farms, all of our animal books are in a box, doesn't matter what level they are. The students would take one of them home each night and their parents read that book to them to build their background knowledge. So they're reading about farms at home and they're not necessarily reading it themselves, but their parents are reading it to them. They're learning new vocabulary. They're listening to stories about farms and they're coming to school with that background knowledge. So that's what we use those books for. We don't really want the kids reading those books unless they've got the code. They've got the full phonics code. They know their sounds. Then fine, read any book you like. But before that, we try to stick to the decodable so that they're actually reading, not looking at the pictures which is is controversial yes absolutely and, and yeah. yeah and I was just thinking um you know the other the other part um to that is if you're reading a decodable or you'll say if the the student is on a um decodable book for the time being does not mean they shouldn't be accessing the language rich material no so our teachers every day are reading um really good picture story books, mm. really good stories, rich literature to the students every day. And they, they, we have slides where we break apart the vocabulary, talk about the vocabulary, have literal and inferential questions based on the picture story books that we're reading to the students. So we do get your quality literature, your memfox, all of those for the students, um, but we're reading it to them. And then we're discussing all the elements, the themes, the characters, um, and then asking comprehension questions, looking at probably we try to pick up four different vocabulary words per book and really break them down, put them in sentences, use them in sentences. So it's not just decodables and that's it, not just phonics and that's it. So that whole reading wars argument gets narrowed down to phonics and that's all. But really it, we cover everything. But phonics is such an important part that that's the part everyone focuses on. But we, we cover, yeah, the big, obviously the big six oral language as well to, to really um, extend our students. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. The other question I had, um, so when you were in Belinda School and you sort of had that um, increase in students and there was the, a total shift into science of reading, you've obviously there was a shift in student skills in their capacity um, cognitive resources but as a teacher 
principle, what was your personal shift? Uh, sort of, as I said before, just not wanting to leave anyone behind. That's become my motto. Yeah. Um, I don't want anyone left behind. And yeah. our latest NAPLAN results at Clayton South, we had no one in the bottom two bands in any of our the areas on NAPLAN test. So that's yeah. our big selling point that this works and no one is left behind anymore. But that was, yeah, my big shift at Belinda Primary School was just seeing the change, seeing kids that couldn't read start to read yeah. And kids who are only reading small words start to read sentences. Yeah. Kids who are reading short sentences starting to read chapter books. Yeah. And it just grew from there. And you could just see the confidence growing in the students. And if we get in early enough, it, it takes away that chance for them to fall through the cracks and to fall too far behind. And the parents were seeing it too. So when you, when you do take this journey, you need to bring your, your parent community along with you. So they're doing everything you're doing at home. So it keeps going, but yeah, yeah the big thing was just not leaving anyone behind. That was what I picked up on at Belinda. We, it was always someone left behind in my classroom, not through not trying. It was just, I didn't know the right practices at the time. I was only doing what I was taught. And I think that leads to another discussion around what universities are doing and or not doing with regards to teaching um, graduates about the big six and about things that actually matter in the classroom. Spend so much time looking at Gardner's multiple intelligences and learning styles, whereas we should be looking at how to create a weekly planner, how to differentiate lessons, how to looking at um, instructional models, um, looking at the inquiry cycle for PLC, things like that, and then looking at how to teach reading. These things are what I would be overhauling our universities with. Absolutely. And that's where it starts, yeah. That's right. And, you know, um, sometimes you go with that sort of lack of knowledge, then you as a person in front of the students are having to learn more, employ it at the same time, try to figure out how to differentiate. Like that, even for an adult, it's enormous cognitive load. So how do you, yeah. yeah keep I guess we shouldn't have, I shouldn't have had to go out during remote learning and do this research on my own to find out how to teach kids to read. I shouldn't have had to do that. We should have been shown that at university. That's my biggest argument now is that I, COVID was good for that because everyone was stuck at their laptops and I was able to reach all of the staff by sharing readings with them, sharing research, sharing findings, sharing um, practical activities they could start straight away in their classroom. But we shouldn't have had to discover this on our own. And I know a lot of people in the science of reading community always say, when we know better, we do better. And it's so true. We, we do. Once we learn this, everyone wants to make the change. You, you want to do better for your kids. Um, but you don't discover it until you sort of fall into it. If I didn't meet a speech pathologist, I wouldn't have found this. Yeah. Um, am I allowed to ask how much time did it actually take you to learn all of this? to employ these practices and particularly during COVID when it was remote learning and it, that's a really difficult space to be in. Yeah, I, I probably too long. I did spend too long and I went down the rabbit hole and I, every article that came up through Facebook I read 
every article on five from five website I read. I bought my shelf at school is full of books that I've read, um, like Lynn Stone's reading books and um, Hollingsworth's explicit direct instruction, just anything I could get my hands on and my eyes could read, I would read it. And, and I guess my staff kept saying, you're going too fast. You're going too fast. You're taking this too fast. And I was trying to go slowly <laughs> to keep everyone on the same track as me, but I do go a million miles an hour and I, and I do love to read and, and better myself and, and in turn try and better the staff to better the students. And, I don't know. It just probably did become an obsession because we were stuck in our homes for so long. Yeah. Um, they left me with a laptop. So what am I going to do? <laughs> I may empathize with you on that. It really, <laughs> it really does send you through like an entire turmoil of emotions to go, what is it that we need to learn? And why didn't someone say this before? That's exactly yeah it was and then and then it was it became people are starting to hear about our school yes. people are starting to say to me how do we get our school in this journey and I, I sort of thought it's very hard to get on the journey if your principal's not supporting it or leadership's not backing it because we do have most schools with a whole language approach and so I woke up one morning and thought I'm gonna write a blog and I, I'd never written a blog, didn't even know how to write a blog. I just woke up in the morning and just said, that's what I'm going to do to try and get this message out there. So that, that day I got up, researched how to create a blog, made a website, made a domain name, principlesofreading.com, tried to wow. make a catchy title. So it was principles, spelt like a school principal. Um, and then just started writing and I just introduced my first blog was just introducing the big six and talking about my journey, just like we are today yeah. to try and use that emotive language to catch a few people that can go, I relate to that. That's the same as how I feel about teaching at the moment. And I was trying to appeal to leadership more so than teachers mm -hmm. because I wanted leadership to read it or teachers to give it to their leadership team to read because it was really practical ideas and set out in an order and a structured way of how to implement this in your school without too much of them having to do a lot of reading like I had to do. Mm -hmm. I tried to summarise everything and share videos that they could just watch really quickly and put it in their school. And it, it's, it's had a good following. It's had a lot of people um, commenting and, and then sharing their stories and letting me know that they've on about their journeys. I'll get a lot of emails at school just sharing how they're going with their school. They just want to tell me how, how their school's going in the journey. And I love reading that. And anyway, I can share anything that we've been using. So trackers that we use to track how our preps are going with their phonemic awareness or how they're going with their phonics knowledge. Um, we've created our own scope and sequences over the two and a half years we've been using this at Clayton South and happy to share those with people just so it takes that, um, the guesswork away. It takes the hard work away. We've done the work. There's no point reinventing the wheel. So have what we've created. If, and if you understand how it works, if you don't come out to the school and we'll, we'll take you through it. That's incredible. And that I can just imagine how much literally blood, sweat and tears being put into creating such a platform. Um, you've mentioned on a couple of occasions, the parent engagement connection has been extremely vital to this um, shift what have the conversations been like 
not during the change also, but now when yeah so and during the change it was COVID we we could only communicate through um online channels and that was hard um we've only really just been allowed to have parents back in the school so our main communication has been our Facebook page and getting the parents just seeing the articles being written about the school to do with our phonics change um any, any publicity is good publicity, and we've just been sharing that to our parents. Um, our prep teacher has set up an a app called Seesaw, and she communicates everything to the prep families. So, and she's really diligent with that and lets them know everything we're doing, sends home phonics homework and explains it for the parents so that they can do everything from home. And we're finding the ones that are doing the work at home with their children, those kids are thriving. They're really, really thriving with their reading and they're blending already and it's only just begun term two. Yeah. So, yeah, if, you, if you're doing the work, putting in the hard yards, it, it really does pay off. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, you know how you talked about the sat pen sequence and mm-hmm. you said it's a simple activity, um, the sat and I just wanted to sort of reinforce it. It is simple, but it's also deep in that um, knowing how is the student blending. And if the student is not able to blend, actually trying to reassess and really observe why isn't the child able to blend, which, the, again, the whole idea of knowledge. We need to know about mm-hmm. things and it might seem simple but when it doesn't work then where where is um yeah where's that evaluation yeah it's it's all down to practice too and and just um intentional practices in the classroom so moving away from i spy with my little life something beginning with k we we move to something beginning with k so the kids are thinking about the sounds and then we sort of will say to the kids, we, we segment the words so they have to blend them to put them back together. So we might say, go and get your l, uh, and we segment the words so they have to blend it back together to hear it so that when they do get to the point of sounding out individual sounds, it's like lunch, and they're reading a story, they'll say, l, uh, and they're hearing it and they're blending it themselves in their head. So we do little incidental things like that throughout the day to get the kids better with their blending. The teacher explicitly models it every day um, up on the board. We have um, some slides that go up on the screen that will have the words and little dots under each letter. We get the kids to say the sound of each of the um, graphemes and then we show them how to blend. So they're getting that modeled every day and eventually it just clicks and they're seeing it every day, it'll, it'll, it'll click. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah. that's how the brain works, isn't it? Once you know. Yeah, so orthographic mapping is a whole other thing to get into, but that's how we learn to read through orthographic mapping. And that's another rabbit hole to go down if you're watching <laughs> this and you want to learn more. Absolutely. Um, okay, so Clayton South is where we're at. I love the website and love the sharings. And it's just, it's um, the language used is so accessible to yeah. the community. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's happening now for you? <laughs> okay, so um, I 
sort of wanted to work out how I could help more than just the 120 students in my school. And I got to the point where, yes, I love working in a school, but I want to help more than just 120 students. And I think I developed that over writing the blog and sharing what we do with every teacher that comes through and all the principals that come through. And then I decided to take a risk. I do like taking a risk. And I went to look into consulting and I was going to um, run curriculum days for schools around the science of learning. And I was going to be um, on hand to advise principals on how they'd like to um, take their school forward. Um, but then when I put it out on, on the Twitter sphere that I was looking into doing that, um, I was poached by um, Decodable Readers Australia. So they've got me working with them now um, and that's really exciting for me to be in that space um, as a profession so I'll be um, I've got to get this right director of instructional improvement will be my job title there um, and hoping to eventually create um, conferences and go nationwide and um, run conferences for teachers and leadership teams uh, around the science of reading, science of learning space, uh, and really get as many people as we can in and learn what they need to learn and then hear practical advice and practical strategies you can take straight back into your classroom to work on straight away. Yeah. And then the other part of that might be assisting with writing some new decodable series and, yeah, just anything that's going to push this space, that's what we're after. That is amazing. So, sorry, say that again, Director of Instructional... Improvement. Improvement. Okay. Yeah. With writing... It's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's all right. Um, yeah, because I was going to ask you, what does that actually entail? And Yeah, so around, yeah, like the consulting, it's similar to... So what I wanted to do was getting consulting and, and this allows me to still do that. Um, and, and reach more people too because it's sort of we're trying to go nationwide with that. So um, that that allow me to follow my passion and, yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to that. So I start that on Monday. That is really exciting. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, before we do wrap up, has there been anything you've been wanting to talk about, Greg, and that I haven't even thought to ask or um I guess another thing with that I I normally talk about my kids my own children um with um the oldest that I've mentioned has high functioning autism reading was just a breeze for him we he he was obsessed with reading that was his thing love we couldn't go to bed without four books every night um so when he was three, he convinced me three books every night. When he was four, it was four books every night. I was dreading him turning five. But when he turned five, he wanted to read books to me. So he was reading chapter books before he started primary school. Wow. Um, he he would have been really difficult to teach in prep because you're really going to have to differentiate for a kid like that. Um, and he, yeah, he's really just excelled. He, he's such an intelligent kid. Mm -hmm. um, as part of his ASD diagnosis, we got him... Um, an IQ test and he came out 129, which is the top 2% of the population. So for him, learning has never been a challenge. But when I had my second son, it wasn't his passion. He didn't want to pick up a book. 
I think he would have got angry if I picked up four books and said we're reading four books tonight. So it wasn't so much that that was what he wanted to do. So what I did with him was follow the signs of reading. We did the phonemic awareness sounds in the car. We'd be driving and I would say some words all segmented for him to blend back together. So he didn't realize we were doing boring school work to him, but we were doing that every day and um, the phonics stuff as well. So we would, I would teach him sounds following a scope and sequence and bring home decodables from my school for him to read because his school was whole language and they weren't necessarily following how I would have liked him to be taught. And his teacher will tell you that parent teacher interview was like a PD for her. She <laughs> it was 45 minutes long and I, I did feel bad afterwards, but I really wanted to get it across how, how I wanted him learning and what was going to work for him and for everybody else in the classroom. Um, yes. So he's now doing really, really well with his reading, but it wasn't um, as simple as my first son. It was a lot more explicit instruction following the scope and sequence, using decodable readers, which I didn't need to do with the eldest son. So really showing that difference that if it's not working, the whole language approach, then yes, grab your decodables, follow a scope and sequence, that works. And he's living proof of that he's doing really well. Now he's in year one and he's doing really well. Absolutely. So that's probably the one thing I probably didn't, yeah, didn't talk about. Yeah. and. Great. Just, just expanding on that point, you as a parent also had your professional knowledge as well um, from whole language to science of reading and you've had this experience. Do you find that parents that don't have that professional knowledge base, um, is there any like things where, you know, it's, oh, it's it can be too hard, life is busy, this that is there any of that there, there always is you've always got disadvantaged families you've always got families that don't speak english at home so that's why we have to make sure we do this every day in the classroom it's really predictable for the students they know what our day looks like it's consistent um, there's no surprises they get exactly what they need in the classroom because if they go home to non-English speaking home or mum and dad have dyslexia and can't read, we need to make sure that we've done the right thing by them at school. Those kids will also get extra intervention at school time as well. So they'll get extra. So they're, they're not being read to at home. We make sure they're reading to an adult every day at school. So they get that extra help too. We've identified exactly who needs that extra assistance and we make sure we give it to them. No, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything, a couple of key takeaways for anyone listening to this conversation and it may be anyone in the world listening? Yeah, I guess um, biggest one would be uh, follow your passion. So my safe space is a school. I've been in a school all my life, as I said, and I was very hesitant to leave but my second one would be take a risk if you're passion, passionate about something take a risk and and give it a go put yourself out there that would be the next one put yourself out there create a brand for yourself so you never know where it's going to take you I wouldn't have ever dreamed that I was going to leave school ever but I have and um, couldn't be more excited to be helping a lot more than just the kids in my school um, love what you do 
make sure that you love what whatever it is you're doing that you love it you love it and be positive um i like to always tell my staff arrive with two solutions to the problem you're about to bring to me don't just come to me with a problem bring two solutions that way it's a lot easier to deal with us say a or b pick one and we're we're off and running again so they're my my big five i think and that can relate to any profession i think yeah and that's a really good coaching strategy too mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> thank you so much great for spending the time your energy and um yeah to have this important conversation about your chapter um for anyone that is listening to human chapter thanks for having me no worries at all for anyone that's listening to human chapters either on facebook youtube or listening to it on podcast please feel free to share it with anyone that may connect thanks guys thank you